there is something happening. And you're right. When you earn a dollar on your own with something that you created that doesn't involve a job per se, it was just like, I was hooked. I was hooked and I'm like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to build this to the point that I can quit my job. And that's exactly what I did for the next couple of years. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello and Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today we have on Janice Torres-Rodriguez from the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast, and we're going to be talking about how she grew a food blog to multiple six figures in a few short years. But before we do that, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody, we kicked off the year in travel mode. We, uh, you know, this past summer, we went to Marfa and Big Bend and loved it so much, we decided to kind of plan a New Year's celebration trip around that. So six of us went to Big Bend and Marfa. And if you don't know, Big Bend is just a beautiful national park in Texas. It looks like you're in Colorado, maybe even a little drier than Colorado, but you got those big mountains and the big caverns and stuff. And so it's really cool. And then Marfa is just this funky town in the middle of nowhere. So we did a, a little countdown celebration there with a cool little band and then trekked our way back up to Austin. How about you, Cody? I also had a little bit of travel this past weekend. We went up to this little cabin retreat in New Hampshire. So that's where we spent our New Year celebration. Usually we'd be doing it at like we've done it at a club in the past or at a super packed bar. But I don't know how it is down in Austin, but literally every single person has COVID <laughs> in Massachusetts right now. Or at least that's what it seems like. So Kept a little bit low key. It's kind of like a cabin in the woods type of deal. It was super nice, a really nice retreat, and yeah, hung out with some good friends. I was planning on going snowboarding this weekend, but it was raining every single day. It just seems like we're not getting the best weather in New England this year. It was like, you know, 35 and raining, and 40 and raining, and not sure when that weather is going to change around, but still fun all in all. Got to hang out with friends, like I said, and 2022 is already starting off to be a good year. So hopefully all of you out there, 2022 is your year. You're going to crush it this year. Justin and I are right behind you. But besides personal updates and New Year's fun, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called personal capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards, they're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. All righty. Today we have on Janice Torres Rodriguez from the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast. And she walks us through what is quite an explosive journey. And to some people, she might seem like an overnight success. But Janice kind of takes us behind the scenes and shows us that 
this blog, this food blog that she's going to be talking about during this episode, this was in the making for quite a number of years, and she had a couple zero revenue years before this started to become serious. We actually talk about how she ended up quitting her job because she started creating multiple six figures from, just like I said, a food blog. So much in this episode, if you're a blogger, if you're not a blogger, if you're someone who's just looking to get into entrepreneurship and online business and you're not quite in the mindset yet, I really think you're going to enjoy this one. Yeah, Cody, and this story had two of the big tenets that I see a lot of times with entrepreneurs, and that is having to pivot and understanding that and knowing that you you need to maybe niche down a little stronger, as well as understanding it's not an overnight success, like you said, and that it takes a little time and you just got to stick in there and believe. If you're interested in maybe making a food blog or just starting your own business, or you know someone who would be interested in a story like Janice's, you can do that and find all the links to follow Janice at thefyshow.com slash Janice. That's thefyshow.com slash J-A-N-N-E-S-E. Take it away, Janice. You know, it's funny. I think I was always a kid who was like into numbers. So I have a career in STEM. I was always interested in, you know, science and engineering and just wanting to learn how things work. And I feel like money is also one of those things that a lot of us want to understand, but don't necessarily get the lessons that we need in order to be good with it. So when I think back to my childhood, a lot of the lessons that I saw were not necessarily the most positive. There was a lot of like money is hard to get. You have to work really hard for it. Um, You know, my father was an engineer. And so I think that's why I ended up taking after him because I saw that financially, that was the smart move. But I also saw him having to travel a lot. And so I associated this idea that to be wealthy, to have money, you need to sacrifice a lot. You need to sacrifice time with your family, the people that you love, maybe even your health, your mental health. And so I think I got kind of a skewed perspective of what it means to make a lot of money and what success looks like. And so as I became an adult, I definitely had that same mentality where it's like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do just to make a lot of money not necessarily prioritize the more holistic aspects of it and really understanding how I can use it to create a life that is less chaotic versus more chaotic. And a lot of my self-education, because you know I don't have a background in like business or finance or anything traditional, was just listening to podcasts. I found myself around the age of 30 just really feeling like I did not know what I was doing. I was earning a good amount of money, but I didn't know what wealth was. I didn't know what investing was and definitely didn't know what financial independence was. And once I started hearing those conversations on podcasts like this one, I realized, wow, it's not just about making a bunch of money. You can actually buy things like time, like freedom, like less stress, like more ability to just carve out this thing that we call life into something that feels intentional versus something that just happens to us. And so that's kind of how it started for me. I think it's always fun to pick apart these journeys and especially in the beginning, kind of the mindsets and what got you over certain humps. I know for a lot of people, even if they are comfortable with numbers, maybe investing just really scares them. It can be intimidating. Can you kind of walk us through when you first started deciding, you know what, I'm going to put some money into this crazy thing called the stock market. I have no idea if it's going to be gone tomorrow and what it was like getting over that hump. Yeah, I think that's something that is unique to millennials is I believe we're one of the first generations that we are told, like, you need to figure out retirement for yourself, right? We don't have things like pensions that maybe our parents or grandparents could rely on 
just this social support network is just not existent. And so I, I remember hearing, you know, things like a 401k, like you should probably have one of those. And so when I started working at the age of 22, that was my first full-time job, I decided, okay, well, HR said this is for retirement. I think I want to retire. That sounds lovely. So I'm just going to start, you know, contributing, I don't know, two, 3% of my paycheck because I still had this mentality of like, well, I need this money now. So I'm not going to put a bunch of money in this account. I'm broke. I have student loans to pay. I'm trying to move out of my parents' house. And so just this idea of being able to visualize what retired Janice could look like, that was just a huge mental block that I had to get past. And I think, you know, a lot of young people, they just can't even fathom, like, what is 60-year-old me going to look like? What are we doing, right? <laughs> so it's hard to imagine that future self. And then I think from a cultural perspective, when we talk about investing, it's very much associated in the Latinx community with gambling. You know, there's no logic, there's no rhyme or reason for why it happens, or that's the perception. And so it's just a great way to throw away money. But it's funny because the lottery is something that's very common in our culture to play. Like I know my parents would go and buy lottery tickets like on a weekly basis. And now that I think about it, I'm just like, what would you guys have now if instead of those $20 a week, you were investing that in the stock market? And so a lot of it is just like this unlearning of the scarcity mindset and a lot of the fear that we associate with money in in cultures where it's just not plentiful and we just don't know where, you know, the next dollar is coming from. Now, you're one of the biggest voices, I'd say, in the Latinx community when it comes to personal finance. So I want to dig into that a little bit because I don't think Justin and I have had someone really representative of that community before. I know you mentioned the gambling thing. That's like a common theme, a common occurrence. And the stock market is like this thing that, you know, maybe you'll make 500%, maybe you'll go to zero. What are some other things, what are some other struggles and challenges that the Latinx community faces when it comes to investing and building wealth from a mindset perspective? Yeah, the first thing I would say is there's definitely a lack of representation in the greater personal finance sphere around how the conversation should be different for different communities, right? Because I think a lot of the personal finance advice, especially in America, is very individualized. So things like financial independence don't take into account people like me, where I'm not only planning my own retirement, but I have to help my parents, in their retirement, right? So like, how do we change the equation for FIRE to include the family? That's a big thing. And then it's also, there's a lack of representation from the educators, right? So we think of folks who are the mainstreamers like Susie Orman, like Dave Ramsey, you know, they're millionaires. I mean, Susie Orman has a freaking private island in the Bahamas. Like your <laughs> advice is great from a general standpoint, but for me as a millennial Latina, first gen, first to go to college, first to get a master's, first to make six figures, first to be an entrepreneur, there's a lot of firsts that I'm having to navigate. And I don't necessarily have those people in my community that I can have those conversations with. And if I don't see other people doing things like investing, like pursuing financial independence as a Latina, I'm going to just quickly think that that's not something that is for me. So I think it's really important for us as people who have platforms in the personal finance sphere to realize that it's not a one size fits all approach with money and that cultural taboos and norms play a big role in how we feel about it and hence how we act with it. 
You know, I think this is such a, a big thing for you, like you to be telling your story and how so many different people have different backgrounds. And there's someone out there who's just dying to have someone who looks like them, who has the same background, not even just like looks, but also just the same background, you know, to tell their story. Because you never know when somebody's just sitting there waiting on a story that would resonate with them. And, and you mentioned doing a lot of firsts. I kind of know where you're coming from on that standpoint, like being the first to go to college, being the first to kind of make that kind of income. What was the reception like as your family starts learning more about some of these things that you're doing? Do they start getting more curious about investing? Are they intimidated by what you've done? Are they like hitting you up for money? Like kind of what was the reception like when they start figuring out all the success you're having? Well, you know, it's funny. I think the skepticism is usually the first stage when you're doing something that's out of the ordinary. So when I told my parents hey, you know, I'm going to pursue financial independence and I'm going to be a full-time entrepreneur. They were just like, what? Like, what does that even mean, right? Like, <laughs> what do you mean you're going to retire early? Like, nobody does that. Um, there, And it, again, it's this fear of taking risks. So I realized that it's not enough for me to just have that conversation once. It has to be an ongoing conversation with a lot of vulnerability and transparency. My parents didn't start investing until I want to say my dad maybe in his 40s and my mom maybe in her 50s and investing in the sense of like, you know, starting a 401k. I think maybe at that age, they started to realize, hey, retirement is not that far away. Let's start doing something. But I don't think they actually understood how much you have to invest or what you need to invest in. When I asked my mom about her journey opening her 401k, she just said like some guy came into work and said, I should open one of these. I have no idea what's invested in it. Yeah, no clue. And so I had to go and like dig through that and understand what it is that they're doing. And as an entrepreneur, I realized that it might not be something that I saw in the version that I have created it, but entrepreneurship has been in my family for generations from the perspective of it being a necessity versus something cool that you do, right? So my grandmother on my paternal side had a third grade education. So she had to become an entrepreneur. She had a little convenience store on the first floor of her home. And that's how she was able to raise six kids and pay the bills because you didn't have any other option. And the same thing with my maternal grandmother. She was a seamstress for 20-something years. The factory in Puerto Rico that she worked at closed. And she said, well, I can't do anything else. So what am I going to do? And she decided to take her seamstress skills and create a little like tailor shop in her home. Right. So entrepreneurship is something that I think millennial Latinos are realizing is Something that's ingrained in a lot of past generations, but instead of it being something that we had to do because we had no other choice, we didn't have access to education or financial literacy or capital resources, we're actually using the fuel of that desire to just create what we don't see to then shape the next generation of, you know, what business and commerce and the economy looks like in America. And I think that's, it's so powerful and it, brings a lot of emotions up because I think about my journey. I feel like I'm representing all of the hopes and dreams that my family couldn't accomplish. And so it's almost like an obligation. It's almost like a duty to see how far I can take this. So as the woman of many firsts in your family, Janice, 
Why go the entrepreneurial route when you had this master's degree? It sounds like you're kind of going down the corporate route to get the good job. That's probably what your parents wanted of you as well. Like they <laughs> probably sacrificed a lot so you could go through through all this schooling and get that dream job of whatever they wanted you to be. But then, you know, you kind of go down the entrepreneurship route, not out of necessity, like some of your relatives, but sounds like because of curiosity and because it was quote unquote cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As a kid, you know, I think a lot of us, we get the narrative, you have a couple choices. You can either be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And so I was like, okay, well, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I actually started as pre-med in college. And then I was a senior and I realized I don't actually want to get into more debt, keep going to school. So I'm going to work in the industry. I graduated with a degree in biology and chemistry. So I went into pharmaceuticals and then I got my master's when I was working. And that was the plan, right? Because I saw the financial success of my dad you know, earning six figures. My dad did not go to college. He got his education in the military. You know, I was like, I'm just going to follow the same path that he did because he was able to, quote unquote, reach the American dream. But as I started progressing in my career, I was making more money. I was getting promotions, but I felt so unaligned with what I was doing. Every day just felt like excruciating. Honestly, it just felt like I cannot do this for the rest of my life. But what is it that I actually want to do? And I started to think back to what do I love to do? One of the things that I've been doing since I was 11 years old was being in the kitchen with my mom. I'm a foodie at heart. I literally travel to eat like that is my love language. And I was like, maybe I'm meant to be a chef. Maybe I'm meant to open a restaurant. So I considered maybe going to culinary school, realized that was going to get me into more debt. And so it also was not a career choice that was going to give me something that I felt like I did not have at the time was freedom to work from anywhere. I had locked in on this idea of remote work because I saw my dad do it. For the majority of his career, he was able to work remotely. And so I was like, I want that too, but how do I do that in a way that doesn't force me to go down the same path as him in an engineering career that I don't want to do? And so I found the world of blogging. I started a food blog. It eventually evolved into a Latin food blog because initially I didn't actually realize, you know, you should probably have a niche and you can't just talk about everything that you're eating. And then it blossomed into an amazing side hustle. After a couple of years, I started making a couple thousand dollars a month. I used it to pay off student loans. And then after I became debt free, I started using the money from that blog to start pursuing financial independence. And as of this year, it makes over $100,000 a year in passive income. And it all started because I was hating my job and just really looking for a creative outlet. Well, first of all, congratulations. That's a huge number. <laughs> I mean, over $100,000 a year for a food blog is incredible. And I mean, for it to be completely passive and for it to give you that freedom to get to work from anywhere. I think we always love hearing that moment of like when you get that first check or that you, obviously <laughs> it's probably not a check in the mail, but you know what I mean? That, that first payment, because there's something different about a dollar that you make via entrepreneurship versus one that you make at a W-2 job. Yeah, I think back to the first time that I made five figures, and that was in 2017. So I started the food blog in 2013, and I got that W-2 form in the mail from my blog advertising company, and it was like $10,000. I made $10,000 on my own without having to work for somebody else and with something I've created here in the internet. That, for me, was the light bulb moment that I need to pursue whatever is happening here because there is something happening. And you're right. When you earn a dollar on your own with something that you created that doesn't involve a job per se, it was just like, I was hooked. 
I was hooked and I'm like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to build this to the point that I can quit my job. And that's exactly what I did for the next couple of years. So I think this is so important because you mentioned you started the blog back in 2014, I think. 2013. 2013. Okay. And you just mentioned 2017 was that turning point where you're like, I made $10,000 this year. This thing has legs. You know, there's a lot of people out there. Four years is just way too long of a time horizon for them to commit to something with, you know, they'd say, and I've only made $10,000 after four years, but you stuck with it. You saw the light at the end of the tunnel. What was kind of the mental motivation that kept you going the whole time? Well, I think the fact that I loved doing it was the thing that kept me going. It was literally my way of de-stressing after work in a career that I really just was not enjoying. So it was something that I was doing out of pure passion, out of pure fulfillment. And the messages I would get from folks, even before I was, you know, really monetizing and people telling me, hey, this is the first time I was able to recreate this recipe that my mom or my grandmother used to make. Like when you have that impact uh, by your work, even if you're not necessarily making money in the beginning, like that's what fuels me. And so I just knew I had latched on to something. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people just don't give themselves enough time to really bring something to life. And I iterated when I started, right? So I was first off thinking it was going to be a diet blog where like slow fat cooking, then it evolved into party type recipes, because I was thinking about having some personal chef party planning aspect of the business. Then I realized that my Latin food, my Puerto Rican recipes were starting to go viral on Facebook. So then I further niche down. And I think you need to give yourself that permission to iterate and to experiment because that is what entrepreneurship is. It's a huge experiment. And then you figure out something eventually that works. And is that kind of where you've stuck for the people who haven't, you know, been to the food blog? You've kind of just stuck with the Latin recipes. Is Have you ever kind of done any cross-pollination where it's like, okay, I'm also into personal finance. Let's do some low-budget meal plans that are Latin food. So I've kept my personal finance brand separate from the food blog, but it was the way that I started to show up in the side hustle sphere, if you will. Right. So when you're starting any kind of coaching business, you have to have some level of expertise in what you're teaching. And so I decided, well, if I'm going to teach people about money and side hustles, I need to tell them about my journey. So that's kind of how those two things tied together. Can you talk about getting fired in 2014? And now it's coming <laughs> back to me. That's why I had that year in my head about when you started your blogs. I believe if I read this correctly, that you started the blog a couple months before this just crazy thing happened and you got fired from your job. Would you talk about that for a bit? Yeah, it was absolutely nuts. I started the blog maybe like two weeks after getting married. My husband and I, you know, we had been together for a while and we're like, we're going to get married. We're going to buy the house. We're going to do all the things. And so uh, six months after that, I got fired and I was like, oh, wow, this just definitely derailed like everything that I thought we were going to do. <laughs> but you know, it was a blessing in disguise. So I walked into work, it's nine o'clock in the morning, I had a meeting with HR on my calendar. And we all know what that means, right? Like nobody ever schedules HR in a call for anything good. And it was January, specifically, they had forecasted a blizzard. And so I basically got 30 minutes to pack my stuff, my position had been downsized. And I drove home in a blizzard, it took me like three hours to get home. I sat on the couch and cried. And then realized, oh, wow, wait, they told me I have a severance check, so I can actually not work for three months. And I can focus on this blog that I had just created 
And that's exactly what I did. Instead of rushing back to finding the next gig, I decided I'm going to wait three months to even start looking for a job. And I'm going to test out this entrepreneurship thing and imagine like, what can my life look like knowing that I don't have the pressure of having to find another income right away. And that for me was what kept me going, you know, after having to go back to work, I had already had that taste of what the freedom that I wanted looked like. That was it. I'm like, uh, we're going to get back to a place where that's the reality. And that's that's what I held on to. And at what point did you get to where the blog is making enough money to where you start thinking about voluntarily leaving that job again? Yeah. So uh, since 2017, I was building the next year, 2018, I made twenty six thousand dollars in 2019. I made $46,000. And in 2020, I made close to I want to say $85,000. That for me was like, wait a minute, this is like a really good salary at this point. And I had moved to a lower cost of living area. So I'm originally from New Jersey. I had moved down to Florida. And that was all part of my like whole fi journey. I'm like, I need to get somewhere where my money goes farther. So when I made $85,000 in 2020, just with the food blog, I was like, well, this exponential growth curve that I'm seeing is going to continue. And there's no reason for me to think that it's not, then 2021 is definitely going to be a six figure year. And that's exactly what has happened. But it was January of 2021. I had already decided I'm leaving. And also because my podcast and the platform associated with that was also now becoming a full on business. And it was getting to the point where I was having to take time off of my nine to five to build my business. And so that was a big moment for me where I don't even need this anymore. I'm actually creating more with my businesses than I am with this paycheck. That's just a crazy feeling is when your (laughs) side hustle surpasses your income from your W-2 job. One question I am curious about. So you're building this blog. It's eight years in the making, I guess, from when you started the blog to when you're finally able to quit your job. For people who don't quite understand like how a food blog is making six plus figures a year, could you just give us a quick breakdown of like how those revenue streams are produced? Yeah. So I think when you start a blog now in 2021, there's a different way to monetize than there was back when I started. It was much easier to go viral on uh, social media platforms organically. And, you know, the algorithms have changed quite a bit. But my food blog is monetized, I want to say, 98% through blog ads. So I work with an ad provider. And just so that you're aware of like what type of traffic leads to this type of income. I have about 4 million visitors a year to my website. So that's where that number comes from as far as the income. And then the other 2% is affiliate marketing. So I use things like Amazon affiliates and, you know, other affiliate programs to make a couple thousand dollars every year. And I also was doing quite a number of sponsored posts. So that was another thing. So I would get contracted by companies to use either a product or sometimes an appliance or something like that in order to create a recipe that was Latin themed, but featuring their product. And so that's how I monetize. I don't do sponsored content anymore. So at this point, it's pretty much just the blog ads and the affiliate marketing. And for those who you know aren't as familiar with the business, but are probably pretty familiar with food blogs, you know, one thing I always think about with food blogs is where you're like, 
Jesus Christ, just get me to the recipe. You know, <laughs> I guess is that part of the game you have to play is to make it a little further down, make you go through an autobiography to get to the get to the recipe. You do because when it comes to ads, you have to keep eyeballs on the website. So telling a story, having a narrative, and also from an SEO or search engine optimization standpoint, there is a character requirement, right? Like you can't just have a website with a bunch of pictures and like the recipe and get the same amount of time spent on the page because you want that to be as high as possible. So me as a blogger, I have to balance that. How much is too much? Am I making it easy for folks to get the content that they also need? So I have like a little jump to recipe button at the top of every blog post. So if you don't want to read the whole spiel, you can go right down there. But I also do embed adds into the recipe card. So even when you're looking at the recipe card, I'm still monetizing. So it's just, you get that support from your ad provider and they help you kind of optimize how to maximize the eyeballs. What are some of the biggest changes, if you can think back, if we can hop in the time machine for a second, from the 2013 version of your website to now, whether it's social networks and promotion, whether it's making sure that Kind of what we were just talking about, that the page is laid out nicely for SEO purposes, whether it's getting people onto an email list. I just love to kind of hear what has changed over time and what's worked and what hasn't. Yeah. So my food blog was hideous. I will say that. And I think, you know, we get so caught up in like the aesthetics and the branding and the logo and all that stuff that that can almost be a reason why people don't start. But I go back to, you know, posts from 2013 and I'm like, wow, this was terrible. I was taking pictures with like an iPhone 5 and no lighting, no food plating skills. And that's something that you have to give yourself permission to do as you're evolving as a blogger, right? You, you learn the skills as you go. Social media played a much bigger role back then. So I would go viral almost on a weekly basis on Facebook. Like that doesn't happen anymore. Even Pinterest. Pinterest is my largest social media platform. And that's pretty common for food bloggers and a lot of visually driven content. But even Pinterest's algorithm has changed to the point where they actually want you to stay on Pinterest versus driving traffic to your website. So SEO is... I would argue the most important thing that you need to be focusing on nowadays, because 90% of my traffic at this point comes from the Google search engine. And even that algorithm changes. So it's about staying on top of those changes, understanding how technology evolves. And I do go back and restructure old posts and retake photos and just optimize. It's always like you're doing maintenance. It's not like you're creating this piece of content and you're never going to touch it again. You have to do that active maintenance in order to maintain and keep up with Google and their algorithm changes. And along that same thread, what are maybe some really common mistakes you're seeing other food bloggers make that are getting started this time frame? Yeah, I think the first thing is not niching down enough or thinking that you're going to be able to differentiate yourself by just being very general. And I made that mistake, right? I think most of us just don't even understand like what it is to actually serve a niche. And what I like to tell people is like, you have to imagine who is the person that you want reading this. So when I realized I did a little market research, there was not a lot of people that were blogging specifically about Puerto Rican cuisine. That's when I knew that I had tapped into an area where there's definitely a large amount of people. There's at least eight to 10 million Puerto Ricans throughout the world but who's serving them, right? And so finding that unique community that you're going to serve is super important. And then I think it's also starting on the wrong platforms. Websites like Squarespace and Wix make it really easy to start a blog, but those cannot be monetized. You need to have a self-hosted 
blog on WordPress if you were actually going to make this a monetizable business from an ad perspective. And then I would say you have to think about multiple income streams at this point. So not just the blog itself. The blog is almost like a marketing tool. So thinking about different ways that you can monetize, whether that's through digital courses, affiliate partnerships, events, whatever it is, having multiple streams of income for your business is super important. I mean, it's important for anybody, but especially after 2020, I think it's important as a business owner, especially to have different ways to make money in your overall plan. So that for me, let's say I don't want to do the podcast anymore at some point. I've already built a passive income source that will support my lifestyle, but that takes time. So as someone like yourself who has kind of opened up all these different income streams, we've kind of just focused on your food blog, but I know that you've now ventured into creating personal finance content, specifically in the Latinx communities. You have a podcast with over a hundred episodes at this point. I see you have like coaching and courses and all this other stuff. When did that first start? When did you first become a personal finance creator? Yeah, so that was in 2019. I had been consuming Financial Independence podcast for a couple of years now, and I was craving hearing the conversation by the Latinas. And so I was doing research, couldn't find anything. And I was like, I'm going to start a podcast. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but let's just go. And I was actually listening to the Cardi B and JLo song, Dinero. The chorus goes, <laughs> yo quiero, yo quiero dinero, which means I want money. And it was a light bulb moment for me. You know, I feel like it was divine intervention. And then as an engineer, like my brain's always thinking, I'm always thinking like, what's the next creative thing I'm going to do? What's the next invention? And those two things collided. And I literally like went, got all the social media handles, got the URL, made sure nobody had this and literally downloaded an app on my phone and started talking like in my closet. (laughs) And I had no idea what it was going to morph into. I just wanted to create a space where I could hear conversations about money from a woman like me. And so I started inviting folks on the platform. I was hanging out on Instagram. I would send people DMs. I'm like, I love what you're doing. Let's talk about this. And it has blossomed into just an amazing community. And it just reiterates this idea of how important representation is in this space. I can't tell you how many messages I get from people that say, I would have never started investing if I didn't hear about Latinas doing this. Or I would have never started a side hustle until I heard you doing this. And it's just so important for us to see ourselves represented in what wealth is and what entrepreneurship is and financial independence and investing, because we have the capability of doing it. We just need to feel like it's something that we deserve to do, that we can do, that is normal in the community. And so it's been such a huge blessing. And for those who haven't got a chance to listen to the podcast, what could they expect from like a frequency, duration, format perspective? And did you get any inspiration from any other podcast? Yeah, so I love storytelling and I would say my podcast is very much a storytelling based platform where I bring normal people. Our whole mission is to destigmatize and just you know, normalize the conversation around money in the Latinx POC community. And so I do a lot of guest interviews for folks who have paid off debt, who are investing, who are starting businesses, pursuing financial independence. 
And then I also do some solo episodes where I'm updating folks on my own fire journey, on my entrepreneurial journey. And it's a weekly show. So podcast episodes are released on Sundays. They're anywhere between half an hour and an hour long. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing, you know, because there are so many of us who are actually like doing this stuff. It's just a matter of giving them a platform to have their voice heard and to have their reach expanded. And so I like to think of myself as like a community connector. Like there's people doing amazing things and it's just my job to go and find them and introduce them to my audience so that we can continue to see examples of what we can do. So you have this food blog, you have this podcast that you're recording weekly episodes. I also mentioned that I saw you have coaching and consulting and courses. Is this still a one woman show or have you started strategically hiring out different parts of your businesses? Yeah, God, no, there's no way I would be doing this alone. (laughs) And so all you newbie entrepreneurs that are super overwhelmed, it's normal. You know, I was building all this stuff while I was working a full time job. I will say I have many privileges in the sense of I have a partner, I do not have children. I had a career that allowed me to work remotely before it was the norm. And so I really maximize those privileges to be able to create what I've created today. But at some point you max out your time, you max out your capacity. So I hired someone as a VA last year. I hired a podcast editor. I have a talent agent who works on brand partnerships now. I have a CFP, I have a CPA, I have a bookkeeper. I still do, you know, HR admin stuff. I still do a lot of the hands-on, like the things that require my face, the workshops, the coaching and stuff like that. But I've also been working really actively to create more passive income through my personal finance brand because I think the mistake that a lot of us make is we just create our own new rat races with our businesses because we just want to keep doing all of the things. And I'm all about more time, more freedom, more money, but you don't have to sacrifice your sanity to get there. And with that, you know, idea of more time, more freedom now with this team built around you, how many hours a week do you feel like you're having to work in general across all these different brands? So the food blog is pretty much its own machine. I really don't spend more than maybe a couple hours a month on there just doing active maintenance stuff. With the personal finance podcast, I work a lot less than I used to. I would say I'm somewhere between like 20 and 30 hours a week. And, you know, the benefit of hiring those team members was very apparent to me a couple weeks ago. Actually, last week I was on vacation and, you know, content was still being pumped out. Folks were still signing up for my courses. Things were still happening podcast episode was still coming out. And I'm like, this is why you have to let go in order to grow. You have to allow yourself not to be a micromanager to hire people who are great at what they do, because that's the only way that you can truly scale a business. So this is a complete 180, but I made the mistake of checking out your food blog while I was hungry. (laughs) And I was literally, my mouth is watering as I'm scrolling through all these different (laughs) recipes. Well, thank you. For those who maybe haven't dabbled in the Latinx recipe sphere, what are maybe your top three that people should experiment and try? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Because I'm going to tell you everything that is my favorite is Puerto Rican. So I'm going to give you my top three. The first one is called arroz con gandules, which is rice with pigeon peas. It's part of our national dish and it's served at every party, every holiday. It's a must. The second is what we call pernil, or it's roasted pork shoulder. And again, it's like the holiday food. Like nobody eats turkey. We're eating 
pernil. <laughs> and then the last thing would be, and it's perfect for this time of year, we're speaking in December, it's called coquito. Now, a lot of people know eggnog. Well, coquito is like the Puerto Rican version of eggnog. So instead of being like an egg-based thing, it's made with coconut, it's made with rum, it's made with cinnamon. It's like, once you have coquito, eggnog is just not comparable. You don't want it anymore. <laughs> so those are the three things. What about an item that somebody might see on the blog and be like, oh, I don't know about that. That sounds a little <laughs> too exotic, but it's worth a try to get over the hump and get past that middle fear. Yeah, I think probably the octopus salad. Octopus is like just a weird alien looking thing. It's such a common dish in my culture because we're an island. So seafood is like the thing. And it reminds me a lot of my dad. He's definitely the foodie of the family. And he would make it every holiday season. So I would say if you're feeling a little adventurous, definitely check out the octopus salad or ensalada de pulpo. Alrighty. Well, I will definitely have to try that one out. <laughs> something I think is always interesting to ask of successful entrepreneurs. That's something that a lot of my friends will ask me is like, Cody, you have all these different things going on. And I know, Janice, you have a ton of different things going on. We've already been talking about it this entire episode. In terms of schedule and management, how do you kind of facilitate things? Like, do you have a vision board? Do you have like weekly goals, daily goals, monthly goals? How do you do, you do time blocking or just what are those strategies that help you kind of stay sane and get everything done that needs to get done? Yeah, that's a great question. I being a solopreneur is one thing. Like, I think it's easy for me to keep my schedule on track when it's only me that I have to worry about. So Google Calendar is like my best friend. There's no way I would survive without Google Calendar. When I started having to be available for meetings and booking client calls and all this stuff, I started using a tool called Acuity Scheduling. It's owned by Squarespace. And it is a godsend because you can literally send somebody a link instead of going back and forth and figuring out a time on the calendar, they can pick it super easy. And then now that I have a team, I use a tool called Asana, which is basically like a digital whiteboard, if you will. And you can track your tasks, you can reassign things, you can check project statuses, and you can do it all with a phone or a computer. So those are my three must have tools for keeping my head on straight. <laughs> and I know you mentioned expanding the team, you know, hiring on some other people, but what about, you know, like your close family, like your partner, has there been ever been any conversations to like bring them on as part of the business and let them step away from their normal nine to five jobs so that you both have this extreme amount of flexibility? So my husband is very much still trying to figure out what the heck it is that I do, right? And so I don't know, maybe long term, he might end up being, you know, CFO or something that he's always been good with numbers. But right now, I actually hired my sister as a contractor for my business. So she is my right hand person. She handles all my meetings sending out information to clients. She is like the person that I just toss everything to that I don't want to handle myself. And she's been amazing. And my mom is getting close to retirement. And she has had like 30 something years of experience in being an executive admin. So I told her she's going to be like a part of my company once she decides she's done too. So I'm excited about that. Love that. Yeah. I love when you can kind of bring people from your family or from your inner friends kind of into your world and just show them what's possible. Because like you had said, your parents hadn't even started investing in their 40s. And now they're seeing you do this, hitting financial independence decades before they knew it was possible. That's just awesome. Yeah. And the thing, too, it's just like 
it's so important to continuously have these conversations with folks when you're the first one doing things because this year I was actually able to get both of them to open Roth IRAs and they're 61 years old. So I'm just like, look, if this was the point of all of this so that I could just encourage them to stop seeing the stock market as this risky, crazy thing and start to understand that you can actually build wealth and freedom with it, then my mission is done. And everything else that happens at this point is just gravy. As we are starting to get closer to the end, I want to double check again. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you're like, you definitely want to talk about this before you let me go kind of thing? No, I think you guys have been really great. You've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janice, you have so many different things going on, so many different avenues where, you know, you're pumping out content, you're helping people. If people are really interested in resonating with a story and they want to learn more about it, where's like a best place where they can kind of keep up with you, reach out, connect? Yeah. So definitely subscribe to the podcast. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Yo Quiero Dinero. You can find me on Instagram mainly, but I'm all over, you know, everywhere from TikTok to Pinterest at Yo Quiero Dinero Podcast. And definitely check out Yo Quiero Dinero Podcast.com for the blog and everything about my digital courses. And if you need food recipes, you can head over to delishdelights.com. Awesome. Well, I've actually been doing Duolingo every day, Spanish. So once I get good enough in a couple of years, maybe I'll come on as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> only Spanish only. Well, you know, it's funny because the podcast is actually in English, which I think a lot of people don't, you know, necessarily correlate that with the fact that it's a Spanish language title. But yeah, it's all English language. So if you're intimidated, don't be because as long as you understand English, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened. I was totally just messing around trying to... Trying to pump up my Duolingo skills, but Go for it. <laughs> again, just want to echo what Justin was saying. Really appreciate you coming on. I've been watching you on Instagram and social media, just blowing up in terms of the revenue you've been making in your blog and how many people you're helping and connecting with and just super inspiring to get you on the show. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. You guys have been an integral part of my own financial independence journey. So I just want to thank you for what you do because you were the first podcast to even introduce the concept to me. And so you have a, a role in this life that I'm living now. So thank you. That's a huge honor. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. <laughs>